Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unprecedented Podcast. We are back on a somewhat consistent basis here. I'm Andrew Lemos. I'm Tom Bunting, and what I'm sure is a great sign, uh, when you said that last bit, it just sped up for me over (laughs) Skype, so off to a great start. This is going to be awesome. It kind of slowed down on my end, so uh, we're good. Okay, great. I'm going to start us off this week really quickly by saying thank you once again to Kevin Blue for our intro music, John Bunting for editing, and throwing in that fun disclaimer, the views expressed in this podcast do not express the views of anyone's employer here especially mine uh so, so now i i only speak for nbc <laughs> we can't make that joke every week um, yes we can let's let's roll into uh the week's news there's nothing bigger going on in I'm, my opinion i'm the new host of msnbc's 6 p.m hour <laughs> i'm happy to announce me and megan kelly got a it's, you know, do you, do you know that show Fox used to have with Hannity and the liberal guy who died? That's, it's it's basically that. I'm not going, I'm not going to indulge in this. <laughs> I really like okay. my job. Let's, let's move right <laughs> along here. Um. <laughs> it's the two of us and Alex Jones. <laughs> um. Danger. All right. Um. <laughs> Uh, so the biggest story this week, all kidding aside, uh, is the continuing march towards maybe being passed um, that the American Health Care Act or whatever the hell they renamed it in the Senate is right now. The Republicans are still trying to do health care. Uh, but after my sad boy, maybe a couple glasses of wine in gloom and doom predictions last week as I was watching John Ossoff lose in real time, it appears that the Republicans have hit a couple uh, speed bumps on this. Yeah, it, it it did not happen. They really McConnell really wanted a vote to go through before the July 4th recess. And then earlier this week, he said he was pushing it back until after the recess. Mm-hmm. And some no's we know about right now. Um, there are conservative no's. Mike Lee from Utah, Rand Paul from Kentucky, uh, Ron Johnson, strangely, from Wisconsin. We really should have taken care of that one in 2016. Um, and Did Ted Cruz Ted, ever come around, or is he still a holdout? No, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is saying really nice things like "I want to get to yes," but he's still a no. So we have those conservative holdouts. Then we have moderate holdouts who are concerned with things like Medicaid for their rural states and Planned Parenthood being funded because they're women and like the idea of poor women getting free mammograms. People like uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and Susan Collins from Maine. Then you have Dean Heller from Nevada, who is very interested, very, very interested in getting reelected. He just drew a couple top tier Democratic challengers um, to Congresswoman. Uh, who represent Nevada right now, I think are going to duke it out in the Democratic primary for the right to run against him. He has a sub-40% approval rating. He trails by double j- digits to a generic Democrat. Um, he's Clinton probably... won in Nevada. He's the, he's the one... Uh, Clinton won in Nevada, so that obviously makes it more intense for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He... I mean, he might lose regardless, but he's definitely going to lose re-election... Uh, if he votes for this bill. Uh, I don't know if you saw any of his press conference with the state's moderate governor, who's very popular, who he's trying to attach himself to. Um, But it almost felt like, I'm stealing this from some other pundit, but it really felt like it was like, 
he was strapping himself to the mast like of a ship or something in a storm. Like he <laughs> desperately didn't want to go overboard. Like he desperately wanted to I will survive to, this. He want well it sounded like he wanted to use really aggressive language to the point where he wasn't giving himself any out or like publicly if they made like some like superficial tweet he could tell Mitch McConnell oh, yeah. like I didn't say that this was okay. Like look at my previous statements I'd be contradicting myself. Like it really felt like he was desperately holding on for dear life here and does not want to vote for this bill unless there are some serious changes made, which is interesting. And then you have a whole nother contingent. I mean, of- it, I don't, I think there are very few Republicans who actually want to vote for this bill because this bill is going to doom them. I mean, the CBO score came out and by, by 2018, like millions of people are going to lose their health care. Like that's a really hard thing to win a re- re-election on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That isn't, it's just, it's not normal. It's not okay. It's, um, as I was saying, there are still some undecideds here, including Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, Rob Portman from Ohio, and they're opposed to parts of the bill because either they come from a state that uh, has used a Medicare expansion and needs that coverage and, you know, has a lot of citizens in the state on the Medicare expansion, or their state is particularly affected by the opioid crisis, and a lot of those um, people struggling with addiction receive treatment through Medicaid, and they need that money to come from somewhere. There's just a lot uh, going on. It's a really wildly unpopular bill. A bunch of polls came out over. Yeah, the... exactly. Like it's it's not a very popular bill, and that's because like at the root of this, like it's it's a Medicaid and Medicare cut, which. Both of those federal programs, like, pull above having private insurance. Like, the satisfaction rates are higher. People, by and large, like those programs a lot. So cutting it to the extent that this is cutting it, which seems like pretty historic levels of, like, rollback on those things, it's hard to sell that. And I think they've responded to this by not even trying. Yeah. And I think that just makes this seem more unpopular with people. Yeah. Um, I honestly, Mitch McConnell gets a lot of credit for being a brilliant tactician, and in a lot of ways, he is really a brilliant tactician, but I think that his whole let's craft this in secret strategy has kind of backfired on him pretty badly. Like, I think that it's a bad look. It just, it just looks, exactly, it's a bad look. Like, you can't sell the public on a bill that's going to fundamentally change their insurance for 25 million people or 22 million i'm sorry mm-hmm. and doing that in secret and not even attempting to sell it to people just makes it look worse yeah. I mean, they aren't even their only argument for the benefits of this is it gets it's getting rid of obamacare which it kind of isn't because it keeps a lot of things in place it just gets rid of like individual mandate and a lot of subsidy uh, a lot of uh medicaid and enhancements that obamacare had um, but it also, but like, this is all being done without a whole lot of explanation to the public. I, I wonder how this would come off if they had some kind of coherent strategy for selling this to people. Yeah. I mean, they'd have to be that doing better than they here. are now because virtually every demographic group is opposed to this. There are a bunch of polls that came out over the weekend and they're showing, um, like support for passage somewhere between, 15 and 20 percent there was a 12 percent in there from one poll there was a 17 percent in another like obviously there's margin of error on that but like the vast majority of americans do not want this legislation passed in virtually every part of the country i think 
if I remember correctly, there isn't a single state that polled, like, a majority in support of this bill. So, like, Republicans might be imperiling themselves. And I know I was sad last week about John Ossoff and the Democrats' lack of a coherent strategy and message, and that's something we can talk about. But at the end of the day, if you're this almost irresponsible as a legislator where you completely ignore what all of your constituents are saying, there will be consequences on some level. Now, all I mean... Another thing the White House has been doing this week is actually pushing ahead with their commission looking into voter fraud. And as part of that, they sent a letter to all 50 states requesting uh, voter roll data. Yeah, but vir- so, you know, virtually every state has told them to go fuck off. Yeah, right. But like the implication here is giving them this power while also passing deeply unpopular legislation, it... I'm, you know, you can make some inferences about what the next four years are going to look like for voter rights, yeah. which it's kind of the only way you can keep keep in power with red, uh, legislation this unpopular and this like actively harmful to major parts of your population. Yeah, that's very true, actually. That's very, very true. It's just unfortunate. I, my question for you is, do you think this is going to go the route of the House bill? And after this embarrassing quagmire and this embarrassing failure end up getting passed out of the Senate. Yep. You're completely convinced. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, I think, I mean, we saw this exact scenario play out with the House bill, right? Where everyone turned against it, the CBO score was abysmal, and then they pressed on, came out with a slightly different version, then passed it super quickly. Um, I remember we completely ate shit on the podcast uh, we did the week of that where we were just like, oh, this is nothing. It's not going to pass because there wasn't a lot of like talk around it because they were doing this so quickly. And then just like that, it went through. I kind of honestly see that. I see that happening again with this. Um, obviously, one of the differences is um, they ha- they're going to wait for a CBO score before they pass it, which the House didn't. And I think that's going to make it difficult to pass it. But... I think at the end of the day, this will probably happen in some capacity. Um, One of the interesting things, Trump today on Twitter tweeted uh, that he thinks that they should move ahead with a repeal bill and then uh, come up with a a plan at a later date, which honestly I could see happening if if they try this again, the CBO score dooms it. I could see them going with a straight repeal bill that they send back to the House. Go ahead. Make my day. Seriously. If they did that, I mean, it was it's an idea suggested by Donald Trump because it's so cataclysmically stupid. I guess that makes sense. They would lose the Senate. They would lose the House. Would they? If, if, if it doesn't go into effect until after the midterms? If they repeal Obamacare without replacing it after years of saying repeal and replace... I think they have a pretty they good They haven't sh- said repeal and replace for years. All they have said is Obamacare is evil and I'm going to get rid of it when I get into office. This would be that. I, I'm, I'm not convinced. I don't want to be overly rosy about... There are a lot of problems in the Democratic Party, but I think that if, you're, if we're playing a game where they just repeal Obamacare and they don't have any replacement and the Democrats run by and large, as a party on Obamacare plus a public option, which I think they're actually probably pretty close to doing. 
um, regardless of whether or not there is a replacement bill for Obamacare and regardless of how this process shakes out, then I, I don't think that's a hard contest. Dean Heller loses his seat. That's minus one in the Senate. Um, Mike Pence is the tiebreaker, obviously. So you need two more seats there. It's not that hard to imagine things shaking out that way. In the Senate, the House is even easier to imagine when you really boil it down and look at the districts. Like, the Democrats really didn't pick up a ton of swing districts in 2016. There were places where Republicans are just going to lose. There's a half a dozen of those. Then you add on racist redistricting laws um, in Texas and North Carolina being thrown out and those congressional maps being redrawn. That probably adds another five, six seats just to the top of the Democrats' margin, regardless regardless of national politics, just because the lines are drawn more fairly now. It's... I just don't think it's going to be that hard, and I think that that would be a really stupid move. I don't think that they're going to just pass a repeal without a replacement. I think that they're just going to... I, I mean, I hate saying this because I was so wrong and I ate shit so badly on this podcast before, but I'm not convinced they can get anything done. If they can, they'll... What do you think they do then? Do you think they just punt it down? I I was reading something tonight that um it was like an anonymous GOP strategist and it doesn't mean anything but it was an anonymous GOP strategist saying like McConnell was not going to be doing this in like September more or less like they were going to give a few more weeks of the summer to this and then they were just going to move on if they couldn't figure something out and that he was not convinced the legislation was going to pass i think the conservatives the Rand Paul Mike Lee Ted Cruz people will fall in line. I think you're never going to get Dean Heller because he wants to be reelected. And then that leaves safe, moderate Republicans like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins in the driver's seat on whether or not this gets passed. Um, And maybe they vote their conscience and don't pass it, and maybe they're loyal to the party and they pass it. I'm sort of convinced it's not going to happen, but I could be wrong. Do you think that in 2018... Democrats run on reinstating ACA like what how do you respond to this if this disappears like I just I'm concerned about like the overall popularity of the ACA because obviously now the polling slipped to uh, uh, in favor of it that was the first time it ever was the public opinion of the ACA was like favorable Mm -hmm. so I worry about how one of the things you said was like, oh, in 2018, like one of the things Democrats can run on is reinstating some of the parts of it. How do you, I worry about how popular that'll be? I mean, they have to add a public option. They need to talk yeah. a lot about single payer and then they need to add a public option. And you wrote, I think in our outline, you're not convinced that they actually want a public option. I'm, I think that you're going to run into a case where a lot of moderate Democrats think that healthcare is a fundamental human right but don't support the idea of the public option um i'm sorry a single payer i think a lot of them could be convinced to support a public option i think single payer is going to be a much tougher sell with a lot of current democrats yeah we're not and i worry about that because i think there needs to be a coherent like there needs to be a single vision for healthcare from the the majority of the democrats who are running in 2018 and i'm worried about who falls in line with that stuff I think that if you make sing- if you make public option the the like you must be at least here and then a lot of other people are talking about single payer and they end up passing a compromise with moderate, you know, Joe Manchin and Susan Collins maybe can get on board. She probably won't vote for it, but 
I think that if they're going to do the Democratic thing that they do, where they moderate the bill to appease, you know, the conservative members, I, I can envision a world where they talk a lot about single payer, like 80% of Democrats running talk about single payer, and then they end up passing a public option. And I do think there is a genuine appetite for at least a public option. Even in um, <laughs> Schumer and Pelosi's interviews um, on Pod Save America, I don't know if you listen to those at all, but like... What's that? <laughs> Is that is that some kind of podcast? Yeah, it's uh, uh. <laughs> it's a political podcast. It's not as good as ours though. Um, I only listen to Jacobin Radio and the National Review. You're not kidding. Gotta get night streams in. <laughs> Jacobin Radio and the National Review. Jacobin does radio. That's actually news to me. As I was saying though, I I think like they both unprompted brought up Joe Lieberman like beating the public option out of Obamacare. And, like, they didn't seem happy. Like, they weren't led there. And maybe they're playing to, like, you know, the crowd. Maybe they're playing to Love It, who rants about Joe Lieberman constantly, and Favreau and Pfeiffer and all those guys who are very pro-public option. But I genuinely believe that, like, they really would have gone forward with some form of a public health insurance option for people who are not 65 years old. And that one fucking guy messed it up and none of them are too happy about it and that guy is out of politics forever so i think that they can run on some sort of public options slash single payer message and be effective regardless of they the have outcome to, of this i i think they have to run on single payer because like anything they do in 2018 is going to happen anyway because trump will still be president and he'll be able to veto anything right yeah Right. So that's like the time you get aspirational. Um, a poll from The Economist and a poll from Politico showed that a majority of voters support a single payer health care plan. Like, I think this is a thing that the Democrats could actually run on and be super successful on because it's like very popular with the public. It's it's aspirational in a way I don't think Democrats have been in years since Obama, basically. Yeah. And I think that honestly, like it's a goal like anything they do if they get the house back in 2018 they aren't really going to be able to do a whole lot with health care because trump will still be president and he'll still be able to veto it but setting your sights that high inspires voters in a way that like a public option doesn't yeah i think you're completely right um i think they should run on single pair they're, i'm just saying it's okay if there are certain people that don't completely get there in like very red districts but like the rank and file normal democrat should be running on single payer and there are a lot of their national message should be single payer exactly yes the national message should be single payer i'm not going to throw anybody out of the party because they're running in you know an r plus eight and r plus ten and you know they don't think that their district can stomach that so they like water it down a little bit but the national message of the party should be single payer that is mm -hmm. absolutely true and i mean Certain people, Beto O'Rourke in Texas is running on single payer in Texas. Like there are a lot of, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be harder or I think it's going to be easier for a lot of Democrats to get there than people realize. Um, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's been tested like how well single payer campaigning works on like people who traditionally swing conservative. I mean, you know, like. Trump would occasionally gesture towards the idea of single-payer health care in the campaign, and that seemed to go over well. Obviously, he had no intention of actually—or he's not doing that currently, but 
I don't know. I could see this being some kind of a trans transformation like issue where it can attract both people in in more conservative districts. I I'd be curious to see if, like polling in more conservative districts about that. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day But I think there's potential. At the end of the day, it's not that hard to convince people that if you get sick you shouldn't die. Like it's not that and Medicaid hard. is like yeah, Medicaid and Medicare are two of the most popular social programs we have, so expanding them isn't as tough a sell as some other things would be. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, making... Let me put it this way. I had a conversation with someone at one of my workplaces, the play, the one that isn't NBC News. Um, was it Megyn Kelly? Oh. What? I was going to ask if it was Megyn Kelly. No, it was not Megyn Kelly. Um, and uh-huh. I had a coworker talking about health insurance in Massachusetts, and he was basically lamenting, and this is not a particularly progressive person by any stretch of the imagination, or a po- particularly politically engaged person. Like, they're, they're not reading political articles on Twitter, they're not following Jacobin or National Review. I don't think they know what either of these things are. This is, like, the definition of the white working class voter that um everyone obsesses over since the 2016 <laughs> election and they were that like guy. <laughs> that guy yeah and they were lamenting how in Massachusetts like if you're on Medicaid and you're not working well you have access to such great health care um you know through I think it's called MassDOT but you know if you have a job and it's not an awful job it's an above minimum wage by a few bucks an hour job and but that's where you are you can't afford it like i th- that's the kind of person who if you told them like you can buy into the state's medicaid program or you can buy into medicare they won't be ranting and raving about socialism they'll be happy that you know they're working and they're getting rewarded for working by being able to buy into the same health care that people who have less than them have access to like i just I talked about it with this person who knows nothing about politics and they seemed really interested in the idea of buying into Medicaid. So it's like they get it for free because they're broke. You have a little bit of money, so you pay a little bit for it, but it's still affordable and you get to have health care. Like, I just think that that's going to play really well everywhere and the other side's going to end up losing the issue. Yeah, and I think I think campaigning for even a public option requires a level of bravery that'll be tough for some Democrats. Um, you know, I think they're very. I think losing the ACA is is going to be really difficult for a lot of Democrats because it's been this thing they've been defending for so long. And I think for inst- I think a lot of the the instinct reaction is just to bring it back, but I don't think campaigning on reinstating a policy that was like deeply unpopular with voters until it went away the selling people on the idea of being able to get health care from the government no matter what age they are i think has a lot of potential that they haven't fully tapped and i think it's a little much it's a it's much more difficult for some democrats to go that far than reinstating the ACA. but i also think it's essential because like you said it's it's a thing that people just want it's you know, it's simple. It's the system we have now, even if it is better in a lot of ways, is still confusing and nightmarish for a lot of people. Yeah. And I don't, and simplifying that will just make it, it's an easy thing to sell. Yeah. You know? Even in my, even in my personal life with my family, my dad's, uh, works in a public school. He's retiring this year. And without getting into all the personal details, um, on the podcast, there's been a lot going on with, healthcare and access to healthcare and and 
to a certain extent, realizing that my family had options that we weren't previously aware of and just sort of balancing that with what's available in the private marketplace. There's just a lot going on and I, it really is confusing. And I think a lot of people would be open to clarity and would be open to, to that public mm -hmm. option. Uh, moving on, because we spent a lot of time on healthcare here and we've made our official predictions. I don't think anything's happening. I don't think I they're going to pass. pass it. Tom thinks they're going to pass it. That's fine. We'll see who's right. Um, let's <laughs> move on to the dystopian nightmare um, thing with the tweets. This was originally something I... Hey, Andrew, have you been watching Morning Joe lately? Uh, no, Tom. When Morning Joe airs, I'm either asleep or <laughs> at work. One of the two. I have not seen a lot of Morning Joe recently. Um, okay, so for me, it's been appointment viewing for the past, uh, how long has it been on? Since then, basically. Um, and they're involved in some kind of scuffle with our president. <laughs> You're biting sarcasm aside. Um, I originally threw this into our outline because I thought it was important to talk about because I was sort of blown away by the fact that the Republicans were really pushing back a little harder than normal, I think in a noticeable way, against Trump's nutty tweets. Trump tweeted I mean, that... yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to read the tweets, but it seemed like you were heading to that. No, 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 please, actually read the tweet. All right, so, uh, <laughs> Thursday morning, Trump tweeted, I heard poorly rated at Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come IQ, low IQ, crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came dot dot dot, and then six minutes later, he tweeted, so this took him six minutes, dot dot dot, to Mar-a-Lago, three nights in a row around New Year's Eve, and insisted on joining me. She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. I mean... I mean... What she obviously what going on there? What so is the implication there? I really haven't. I don't think fully grasped what's happening. Is the implication that she was her face was physically bleeding when she showed up at Mar-a-Lago? I believe so. Yes, and I think that the implication here is she came to Mar-a-Lago and her face was physically bleeding because she got a facelift. And so because you know even... that's what women do. Right, and so even though her face was physically, like, there was blood coming out of her face, she was still like, Why let me Trump socialize to... with you, Donald. Is that what we're Trump saying? Has a lot of, Trump has a lot of uh, mental images of women in blood, which is interesting. Yeah. You know. Yeah, there's, there's a psychologist somewhere who, like, secretly treats him that understands this a lot, I think, but... Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty offensive and disgusting. I mean, it's, it's you know for some background, Morning Joe was one of the first media, respectable media uh, media the shows that really rallied behind Trump. He was on the show all the time during the primary. He would call in. He they were really like his home on MSNBC and to a broader extent cable news during his early like scuffles with Fox and stuff. I mean, you could um, and also... then at some point. At some point, um, I don't know exactly when because uh, I don't watch that show, I was joking. But um, <laughs> at some point, the tide turned really strong against him. Um, and now, from what I can gather, they just spend their mornings going on rants about how he's gotten rid of the dignity in the office. 
Yeah, uh, it's something along those lines. So I think he's like, I think, I think this is like coming from a sense of deep personal betrayal, which, you know, it's Morning Joe, which on some <laughs> levels funny. It's it's funny that he's so offended by Morning Joe rejecting him. These tweets are fucking not great, though, from a president. <clears throat> no, I just yeah, Morning Joe got. If I'm remembering correctly, Morning Joe actually jumped off the bandwagon pretty, I don't want to say early on, but, like, it was before he was even the nominee when they were like, no, 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 they pumped the brakes, which is more than... I think it was, yeah, it was when it was when it became apparent that he was probably going to get it. Yeah, yeah, and then they were done. Um, and, I mean, the whole media, in, to a large point, I think is guilty of not treating Trump as seriously as he should have been treated and not taking his radical ideas as seriously as they should have been taken um, for quite a while there. I I originally wanted to talk about this, as I was saying, now that we've explained the situation, because I thought the pushback from Republicans was interesting. Tom, is it just me, or did you feel like there was more pushback against these crazy, insulting tweets than there normally is against his crazy, insulting tweets? Because, I mean, this was awful obviously and i don't condone it at all it was horrific and offensive to me as a person it was just terrible but it, it like i wasn't surprised it felt par for the course with him yet there's i mean the thing that the thing that republic obviously yeah, i agree with you that the pushback from this especially from republicans has felt stronger than it has with other things he's tweeted as president but like at the same time you know, Trump's seemingly random bits of misogyny have always been the thing that got Republicans to turn against him. You go all the way back to the Megyn Kelly uh, comments he made after the first debate, and that was, like, one of the things initially that turned Republicans really against him. Um, and then, like, another parallel, I guess you can draw, is uh, the Access Hollywood tape, which, as, while being a little more visceral in its content, also inspired, like, a ton of pushback from Republicans. I've I've been like yeah. on some level confused by the intense turn Republicans have had about these comments. Like they've been basically hiding. It feels like Paul Ryan even went out and did his like I don't think this is a good thing to be saying thing <laughs> that I don't think we've seen really since the primaries. On some level, I mean the the general campaign on some level. Um, but you know, it's, it's a repeat of what we've seen before. Republicans really hate being associated with Trump's just blatant misogyny. And then on some level, there's been, there's been tension building between the Trump White House and the press for a while. And I think this is just a more extreme extension of that, him going after these people so publicly and so crudely. Yeah. I mean, as I, as I wrote, um, in our outline, just, I, I think that it's a false equivalency to say this, like, Trump, this, this part of Trump hasn't hurt Republicans yet in any tangible way at the ballot box, that's true. But I think it's wrong to say that this part of Trump will never hurt Republicans. Like, like, the idea that just because, you know, the Pussygate tape, um, and the Alicia Machado thing and all the other terrible things Trump has done have not yet affected Republicans. The idea that it will never have any impact, I think, is wrong. I think that a lot of voters viewed Trump as sort of a new player in the political game, and it's almost like he was starting from zero, you know what I mean? And, like, working mm -hmm. his way backwards. I think for whatever reason, a lot of, a lot of people looked at him and were like, 
well, he hasn't had the opportunity to, like, conduct himself like a politician, or not a politician. I, I think there was just an idea that, like, you couldn't hold what he did in the past before he knew he was running for elected office against him. And so I do think some of this stuff is going to compound. And I also think that maybe the Republican officials that are jumping up and down and screaming about how they don't like this maybe know something we don't. Like, maybe reelect numbers are looking a little soft. Maybe despite, you know, Kellyanne Conway getting retweeted for, you know, laughing her hashtag Ossif off and, you know, the fact that the Democrats can't win a special election, maybe they're, like, more nervous than they're letting on about how much smaller those margins and those red districts are. And I don't know. I, I think there's a lot going on there. The other reason that this is relevant is because of the story they told on Morning Joe this morning. Did you watch that clip by any chance? No, I didn't. Uh, I heard about what happened, but I didn't watch yeah. it. So, um, I mean... I, I, this isn't going to make me watch Morning Joe. <laughs> it's just like a two or three minute clip. So what Joe and Mika outlined this morning, um, this was my first Morning Joe. Actually, Morning Joe is a great property. They, they do a great job Is it a fun? Joe. Yeah, it's great. It's one of the best morning shows, I'd say, right? You know why I pumped the brakes. <laughs> uh, moving right along. <laughs> Joe, and Mika, um, Joe and Mika were talking um, on the show about how basically the National Enquirer, um, the man who runs the National Enquirer is close friends with Trump and the Enquirer is in Trump's pocket. I guess, had some sort of salacious, allegedly, story about Joe and Mika and their personal lives, and Mika had recently gotten divorced, and she's marrying Joe now, and National Enquirer reporters were harassing Joe and Mika, harassing Mika's ex-husband, calling her teenage daughters, harassing them. Um, there were a couple times, I guess, that Joe, like, caught a National Enquirer photographer, like, following him, so... These people, these, like, mainstream news hosts or political pundits, whatever you want to call them, were being harassed by what is the equivalent of a state-run tabloid, and they were told by high-level White House officials that the story would go away and the harassment would stop and they'd all be spared shame if they were just, if they apologized to Donald Trump and were nicer to Donald Trump on TV. So the President of the United States, it appears... Um, was using his influence over a tabloid to try and intimidate and blackmail <laughs> mainstream media hosts of a morning talk show into getting in line. That Ima Imagine being threatened by Jared Kushner. What do you think that feels like? <laughs> I still don't really have a good sense of what his voice sounds like when he talks. So I'm not I don't either. It feels like it changes every time I hear it. He just this isn't going to end well for him, you know. If there's one person I'm convinced is going to go to prison for this, and not to veer into Russia. Not just this, right. Well, but, right. I'm, I'm just saying, like, if there's one person that I'm convinced out of the whole Trump administration is going to prison, it's Jared Kushner. Like, Trump may never go to jail. Mike Flynn probably won't because he's probably flipped at this point and has some sort of deal. I, Jared Kushner just feels like... Like, a 30-something-year-old, like, Nantucket douche who's in way over his head. <laughs> and he's just going to take an incredible fall here and get, like, visits three times a year from Ivanka in prison. And that's going to be the extent of, I don't know. 
just send letters to the editor to the observer about his view about his thoughts on life outside of prison <laughs> i could be wrong but jared kushner just feels yeah, like I, someone who's gonna take a fall here more than any of this other more than anyone else in this cast of characters yeah i think i think going back to the action there's nothing i don't think anything criminal is going to come out of this but it is oh, kind not, of, not this specifically i was saying yeah not larger. this specifically right this I, but I think it's it's pretty up. dark to see the White House <laughs> actively threatening members of the press with uh, with stories in National Enquirer. That's a that feels like a new level. Yeah. Um, and like you know, I, I part of it's it's funny that it's Morning Joe and it's funny that it's National Enquirer. But like this is a weird area to be getting into, especially like what is it month four into the presidency, month six into the presidency. I reject the idea that this doesn't matter. I I really yeah. do. Like, there's an argument out there that, like, oh, well, nothing came of it. Like, Joe and Mika, to their credit, didn't cave and didn't capitulate with the president. They are on. They were on TV this morning. They delayed their vacation to basically go on TV and say, the president tried to blackmail us and we're in a state of emergency. All right, have a nice 4th of July, everyone. We're going on vacation now a day late. Like, to their credit, they didn't fold, but, like... I don't think that makes this happening okay. Like, and when you can, when you take it in 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 unison with the White House that is becoming increasingly um, hostile and closed off to the mainstream press, um, it gets dark. Like, obviously, like, you know, it's Morning Joe. Like, they aren't really investigating anything. This happened because Trump is mad that they stopped being friends with him. <laughs> um, but what happens when this is like the New York Times or like Washington Post or someone who's actually doing things that or investigating the Trump presidency? Just and what happens when the White House takes this as as motive to fully stop even pretending to have White House briefings, which they've increasingly been shifting to off camera audio only, um, which is new. Which Sean isn't doing anymore. It's ju it's just been Sarah this week. And we can actually, this is like a natural segue into our next topic. Because I didn't want to talk about the press briefings and how fucked up all of that is as well. The fact that the White House is really shutting out press access. But my last point on this, to summarize it, is like, if you find a toddler, like, playing with matches three or four or five times it isn't like okay that the toddler was playing his matches just because you with matches just because you caught them and we're like no don't play with like the kid keeps playing with matches just because like they haven't burned the house down yet doesn't mean that it's okay that they're playing with matches uh so it's a dangerous area to be getting into yeah absolutely so moving on to the white house press briefings if you want to talk a little bit about that quickly yeah let's let, i mean we hit it a little bit but yeah basically the white house has been increasingly not allowing uh cameras present at their briefings um a lot of them have been audio only um there have been a couple really attesty exchanges between uh jim acosta of cnn and sean spicer about this um, it's been fun following him on Twitter because he's just been increasingly agitated about this in a way that I enjoy. Um, none of them have actually like decided to just turn a camera on, but uh, it's, there's hostility building in a lot, which seems I'm curious where this goes right now. You know, having audio only briefings is weird, but and a break from precedent, but it's not 
it's not super different. They've still been showing them on TVs. I'm worried about what the next step ends up being, especially in combination with now this established precedent of like actively trying to smear uh, press. Yeah. It's just no one is doing anything about how not normal all of this is. I loved that journalist who appeared to be like a freelancer from Playboy who had a White yeah, House Yeah, Playboy's pres- White House correspondent, which exists now, I guess. Yep. I mean, it's the Trump administration. Um, I Like, I love the way he freaked out and called out what was going on. I was really impressed by that because at the end of the day, he's right that, like, we have no choice but to deal with the Trump administration for the next four years, and barring something drastic happening, yeah. and it seems like there's a... Ve- <laughs> We got another year probably in us, at least. <laughs> another year in us, that's fair. Um, I just, I think it's despicable what's happening with the press. And I really don't think the White, I would like to see the White House Correspondents Association take some action, not cover the off-camera briefings, and be more aggressive in calling out Sarah Huckabee and Sean Spicer when they just blatantly lie and say things everyone in the room knows isn't true. I mean, yeah, like many things, this is just, like, showing a lot of things we thought were laid in stone are actually just, like, based completely in precedent and tradition, and, you know, if the White House Correspondents Association doesn't really have a lot of actual power beyond making statements and meeting with uh, Spicer and Sanders, but I would also like to see them making more strong statements about this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true and we will see where things go um it will be interesting to see what turn he takes with the press if they do have to pack up and give up on health care too there's a lot of moving parts here like everything we're talking about affects the trump administration's communication strategy so i'd be curious to yeah. see how that works uh now let's move on that was a little bit of a almost a quick hit in its own right but i thought it was really important to touch quick on hits. let's move on to quick hits um Putin and Trump are going to meet in person at the G20. Who's excited? I am. You think, um, you think it they'll... seems? I think it was, it was really fun. The White House was very explicit and like, yeah, no set agenda, just whatever Trump wants to say, um, which has always gone well. I'm interested to see what Israeli intelligence he tells Putin. He brags about to Putin. <laughs> Let's get a source indebted deep within ISIS risking his life to protect millions of people in the western world killed hooray (laughs) fucking dipshit um the house did like an unexpected not conservative thing and let like a super liberal congresswoman's bill to end the authorization of military force in afghanistan um go like out of committee which i was impressed with it's like a sure. rebuke of the Trump administration and the fact that we're in a bunch of endless wars. Kind of surprising. Something to keep on the radar. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think foreign policy in both parties is in a transitional moment. Um, and I think a lot of them aren't quite sure where it's going to land. So we'll see. That's true. Well, you know, I feel like 60% of the U.S. Congress's take on policy, foreign policy issues right now is like, I don't know. So interesting yeah. times. Quick hits. And our presidents. And he doesn't, Quick hits. he doesn't know about anything. Quick hits. Um, you mentioned this earlier. What do you make of the scary voter commission thing where they want everyone's information? 
Like everyone's. I mean, it seems it it seems pretty insidious. Um, what is it now? Twenty four states have denied them access to their voter uh, rolls. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I think voter. What's happened with voter ID laws in the past couple of years has been one of the most egregious things that Democrats and Republicans have allowed. So. We'll see where it goes. I'm sure this isn't the only thing they'll do to try to limit uh, voting rights. Yeah, we really, really... Next time the Democrats have control of the federal government, we need to uh, codify some stuff protecting voting rights because this is pretty horrific. It might be the worst thing. 2025, the 2050 Congress will get right on it. I have more hope than you, but okay, fair enough. The 2050 Congress. Dear God. Uh, you can tackle the next one. Uh, oh, yeah, Greta's gone. Greta Van Susteren? Oh, no. I've never said that out loud. Andrew, say this. Greta Van Susteren? You said it right. Greta Van Susteren, a member of the NBC family, no more. Pass. I don't know. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's interesting to see, and because she had only been there for a couple of months, so I think it's interesting to see NBC maybe move away from their strategy of trying to aggress more heavily in conservative voices. Um, you know, they renewed Lawrence O'Donnell's contract uh, pretty recently, but they also gave Hugh Hewitt a show, so I think they're still seeing where that stuff lands. But you know, this is interesting. Her show is her show was not highly rated in any capacity so not super surprising to see it happen kind of surprising to see it soon i'm interested to see where this goes and you know msnbc kind of an interesting place we'll see where it goes i guess i don't know maybe they'll give it to megan kelly quick hits quick hits welcome back um hi uh trump's re-election campaign raised 10 million on wednesday night at at his first fundraiser for re-election like 40 months out from re-election at a trump hotel it's you know you just gotta get on that early is his idea that he's gonna raise so much money for re-election and there are gonna be so many democrats running that whoever comes limping out of the primary is gonna be like a wounded animal with no money because that's really not gonna happen i think that's exactly his idea i think that's exactly what he wants to happen yeah but He's going to get primary too. First of all, he's going to get primary. His numbers with Republicans are so like there was no honeymoon. He should still have uh, a high enough, 50% if approval. If he starts early rating. enough and has enough money, then, you know. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's why he's raising primary. money. Maybe he's raising money in anticipation of his own primary fight. That's very possible, too. I guess that is possible, yeah, actually. Huh. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on. This isn't on our uh, list here, but uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff um, stepped down and was replaced by a new chief oh, of really? staff. Yeah. You know who the new, what the new chief of staff has a lot of experience in doing? Managing what? presidential Camp- primary campaigns. Woo! <laughs> Wonder what that's about. Jared 2020, let's go. <laughs> Did you just say Jared 2020? Yeah. <laughs> he should run and not talk at all. He should just go on to stage and wave. Oh, I, and then I, Ivanka I bet you, talks I, for him. I, I was, 
I was joking, but I one million percent think Jared is going to run for mayor of New York someday and like get primaried by Hillary Clinton, uh, get beaten by Hillary Clinton's like nephew or something. I think Jared's gonna run for something in like one of those. As one of those, like, cool, like, I'm, maybe I'm cool now because I went to, like, jail politicians. who's was like, I was released after tax fraud or whatever it was I did, but, like, prison kind of made me more relatable, right? Like, I'm running again. Like, the mayor of Providence, Buddy Cianci. There's a lot of that that goes on in Rhode Island. I'm sorry if that's a foreign, or a foreign concept for you. But politicians... I think he'll come, I think, I think he'll come out as a very buff skinhead who runs <laughs> as the alt-right candidate in 2026 or uh 2024 okay and you know what i think that is a great place to hang it up for the week that was quick hits this was the unprecedented podcast tom and i both work a lot um so thank you for bearing with us we're gonna try and get the posting schedule and the timing on these things um a little more precise we hope you had fun we always have a good time i think think this one was good i think we're at the point where we've acclimated to skype as soon as we acclimated to doing it in person we had to reacclimate. but i think we're in a good place now and we just need to figure out how to do any kind of prep for this yeah that's that's the other important one prep is crucial i like being able to make eye contact with you though this is that's good i kind of like the skype part i i have not made eye contact with this with you on my screen at, at at any point during this and i've enjoyed it immensely that's harsh, and we're going to bring the podcast to a close. <laughs> Wait, no, just because that's, that's this is my ideal kind of communication, uh, <laughs> looking at Twitter while I talk to a voice. <laughs> All right, I'm Andrew Lemos. Nothing personal. I know. I'm Tom know, Bunting. Buddy. Follow me on Twitter at Tom H. Bunting. And follow me on Twitter at Andrew Lemos underscore, and tune in next week. Uh, for another installment of our slowly unraveling close friendship. <laughs> or maybe in a month. I don't know. <laughs> Two months? You can tell. We'll see. All right. Or it could be next Tuesday. We're Bye. done. This is just going to be harder for your job to edit. <laughs> Bye. Keep it all in.